0: Before we start, here's a message from one of our friends. I'm Ria. I'm Jack. I'm Tony. And we are the Pop Girlers. Our mission? To review anything from pop culture. Our
1: credo? To do so in less time than it takes to listen to a song.
0: Our pledge? To strike when you least expect it. BAM! welcome to the show where people share their passions everyone is geek about something i'm your super dummy paul on a mission to learn from people's experiences this is era of geek as always if you have any feedback on the show please do contact us and leave a review i can pretty much guarantee you're going to love listening to today's guest i for one am very excited
1: My name is Kevin Conran, and along with my brother, Kerry, we made a film called Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. It was the first film of its kind, fully shot against blue screen, um, and it paved the way for everything that came after, up to, including the Marvel films that we're all enjoying today. Beyond that, I've worked for just about every studio in town, the year or another, uh, DreamWorks, and Sony, Paramount, and a bunch of places. Um, and so that's currently what I'm doing. I'm working on some animated projects uh, in Canada, and trying to keep myself busy in between those with my own stuff.
0: Must've been a tough couple of years for you with projects sort of being delayed and not knowing what's going on.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was really, uh, well, I mean, you know, I hate to complain about it because I mean, everybody was sort of in a a similar pickle. You know, we were all, nobody knew what was going on. Um, But when I did get back on projects that were finally given the go, and animation was one of the first things in the entertainment industry to pick back up to speed because, you know, you didn't have to go out to a location and get permits and have a million people. We could literally, and did, work from our own homes over the internet and Zoom, and we could still do what we needed to do. So, uh, in a way, I felt very fortunate that I was one of the people in entertainment that got to keep working. Um, that doesn't mean it wasn't without its challenges. You know, it's very hard to run an art department when you're not in the room with the artists and you're trying to navigate over three different time zones Uh, still hit deadlines,
0: but, you know, we figured it out. Yeah, because I was having a look at the the sort of work that you've done. You've done quite a wide range. Probably the most memorable one for people would be um, Sky Captain. Just how much it did change things. Uh, Did you have any idea at the time what you were getting yourself into?
1: (laughs) Well, with regard to what I was getting myself into, no. You know, because it's just my brother and I with one antique Macintosh in his one bedroom apartment. And we just stretched a blue screen across one empty wall and started shooting our friends. And uh, it just sort of went from there. And next thing you know, we've been into it for seven or eight years and uh, before we ever pitched it to anybody. But I think once we were funded and once we were in a building working with other industry people and actually making a movie, yeah, I, I actually think we did know what the promise was, what of, of what we were doing and what it could mean to filmmaking. The thing that surprised both of us and continues to surprise me to this day, uh, I write about it a little bit in the book, is that uh, we thought there'd be a legion of people right behind us doing the same thing. In short, you know, um, and, I, and i all credit to my brother. His, his idea was to make a big movie, you know, for no, for no money, like we were just two guys that had a certain amount of ability in some areas. What could we do with our limited resources and our limited skill sets? Right. I'm an illustrator by trade, and I've always designed and drawn for all kinds of people, and so I could do that. And carries uh, a, a one of the most clever, talented people I've ever known, but he's he's not a modeler, he's not an animator, and neither am I. So we had to figure our way around that stuff but we let our limitations become our strengths. And I think that's the key to moving anything forward. But um, anyway, I'm getting off track here a little bit, but what I wanted to say was, what we did was we we finally got our little film together, a little short, We took it into this producer and he went forward immediately. And he said, what do you guys want? And we said, we want 3 million bucks for the whole budget. That's what we were gonna do that movie for. And we could have, if it didn't have A-list actors and all the other stuff we had, you know. A seed too, but we we were uh, you know we we were we were fairly certain that once people saw what we were doing, they were going to go, "Hey, I got a great big huge idea that would normally cost two hundred million dollars, and now I can do it that way too." But none of that happened. There still hasn't been a film that was am- as ambitious as Sky Captain was for that kind of a budget, using that kind of a limited uh, focus. And you know what they did is they took those same approaches and they applied them to big budget movies you know they began to use them more and more and everything that you see and and out there now and yeah there still hasn't been an army of uh, eager 20-something filmmakers coming out and doing something like we did for five million bucks and it surprises me i thought it would be inevitable now i don't know that it will happen because you know the whole film industry has changed so much and if you're not an existing ip or a comic book franchise or a sequel it's really hard to get a movie made and uh, much less distributed you know through the traditional channels so yeah i don't know
0: yeah because that's interesting because people say that with technology the way it is now the internet the way it is now that it's it's never been easier is it not quite as true as people would suggest
1: i, I think I think it depends on what your ultimate goals are. You know, to be honest, you know, Carrie and I never anticipated in a million years that we'd get people like we did. Gwyneth Paltrow and Paul and Angelina. The and Paramount would release it around the planet. We'd be flying to London and all this stuff, you know. Um, we just wanted to make a little quirky black and white movie that maybe we could get into Sundance or someplace like that. That was as ambitious as our dreams allowed us at the time. Um, so yeah, I, I felt, like, you know, I feel like rather in some ways it is easier. You can make your stuff and you can get it out. There's nothing preventing you from posting something to YouTube or anywhere else, right? But so in that way, sure, we've got tools and technology now that allow you to create and make stuff. And you can even get it out into the world to a limited extent, but it's still, it's all about distribution. And that's where the studios still hold sway. You you still want to get it out there to a mass market. You want to get into a couple thousand theaters, Netflix, you know, whatever. It's you know those avenues. There was a brief window, I think, when ambitious young filmmakers had an opportunity that is now being gobbled up by the traditional guys. It's tough again. It's back, like like it was in a way. You know, you're back at the end of the line again. I think what I would just tell uh, young creators is to, uh, or, or old ones too. anybody that wants to do anything, just do it. Just make it because that's where that's where most people stop. You know, you can't really worry about distribution and all that other stuff. You got to have the thing first. So make the thing. And as long as you can find enjoyment in yourself, you're still excited about it. You look forward to working on it every day. It has value to you. You think there's something there. As long as you believe that and are inspired by it, get up and keep doing it. And if it is any good, somebody will find it. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be in a zillion theaters across the globe. Well, you'll find your audience, I think. And there's plenty of people doing that and having great success at it. So yeah, I think your likelihood of hitting a huge out-of-the-park home run for a half billion dollar box office is probably not that great. But I don't think that matters to
0: artists really. No, the the love of the um, of what you're doing comes yeah, I think comes most. Because what, what were you doing at the time? Because you started this project, as you say, you didn't have the ambition to get it where it was obviously that would always be (laughs) it'd be great but it's not what you're thinking about at the time so what were you both doing at the time sort of during the day
1: i was a freelance illustrator i had uh i was a young married guy with a couple of little tiny kids and i had a studio back behind our house and i worked for i did primarily uh, advertising illustrations i painted beer bottles coca-cola bottles and uh you know ads for this that and the other thing and i'm a huge sports guy so i did got to do a lot of interesting jobs in that regard i worked for major league baseball and national basketball association nfl um i did a lot of sports related content which was a lot of fun And so i was very happy being an illustrator and doing that my brother he went to film school and all he wanted to do was make a movie and uh so he was sort of He was a little less uh, of a defined lifestyle than mine. Let's say that he was (laughs) jumping between this job and that job, and and freelancing himself um, in the early days of uh, you know digital publishing and stuff. So he was setting up magazines and templates for people, anything he could do to keep his autonomy, so he could be a freelancer and have time to put into this crazy project of ours. And uh, so yeah, that's that's what we were doing. And And honestly, we worked on it constantly. I mean, like if I had to do my paying jobs and deal with my family and stuff, but every spare minute we had, we were either together or on the phone or talking about what comes next. And we just kept going. Kerry had an apartment over in the Sherman Oaks and, uh, you know, uh, he had this, I don't remember what the version of the Mac was. It was an early Mac, you know, it, was, it, was, it would take us, let's, let's put it this way. The holy grail that everybody's been chasing for ages is now out there, you know, real-time rendering, these game engines and stuff, right, which we're gonna use for film work. Well, for us, we would, we weren't shooting film, we were making shots, right, that we would string together. So we'd put a shot together and then carry, kick it off to render. And, you know, in those days it would take 24 hours or longer for a single shot to render. So you can imagine, you can see why this took us seven years. Yeah, And uh, we've been, insane really looking back but frequently regularly you'd send a shot off the render it would come up the next day and you're like oh my god that looks like ass we gotta start over <laughs> you know that's just not what we intended that's terrible and you just chuck it and start again in another 24 hours you know um so yeah that's that's what we were doing
0: and then so you managed to get because i was reading some of the story earlier um and a, so a producer came on board helped you sort of get to the next step. Um, I'm curious how it was for you, because this must be something that people think about. You were an illustrator who was doing a passion project, and all of a sudden you've got this giant baby on your hands, and it's almost like you've gone from this passion project to this whole machine where everyone has an expectation of what everyone's role is. How is it from you going almost from hobby to professional, taking that jump and people looking at you saying, "This is what we expect of you?"
1: That's a great question um, without trying to sound immodest uh, i I didn't worry about it at all I felt fully prepared I, I don't know why it was a well actually I do I've said it many times over the years you know a certain amount of naivete was was great for both of my brother and I we didn't really know what we were getting into and neither did anybody else. That was our saving grace is like we were doing something really new. So we couldn't be questioned about it in a way like people didn't get in our grills about it. We, they just kind of let us do our thing. And fortunately for the first year, year and a half, we were in production, it took about two and a half years in total to make the film. Um, and that way, again, very much like an animation schedule, animated feature kind of a thing, but first year, year and a half, we were on our own. We were in this little crappy building over by the Van Nuys airport and uh, roughly a hundred of us. And really the only people okaying things or passing them on as approved were my brother and I. And that was it. So we just, we just went with our gut and did our thing. And um, then, you know, it got a little more complicated once Paramount came around and our producer moved into the building and this and that. But we were so far downstream at that point; they sort of had to continue to trust us. And honestly, as far as working with other artists and uh, their expectations of me, I—that's one of the things I'm most proud of the whole experience. To be honest, most of these guys I worked with have gone on to continue to have uh, excellent careers in the business. Several of them work at Disney and have big, uh, big roles over there now. And almost to a person, they'll tell you that our little. Experimental film was the best experience of their careers because we, Carrie and I were good to people. We weren't jerks to work with. We valued them as artists. And I think think that's why it worked because as much as it was very personal and I was really the only person doing concept art, which is unheard of, um, they trusted us. And it was because I always allowed the better decision to win. You know, if somebody came up with a better idea than the thing I presented, and that happened regularly, you know, I could give you a laundry list of times when Michael Sean Foley or Zach Petrock or Steve Laws or, you know, dozens of guys, Yamamoto, all these people um, who are really in the weeds working on the specifics when I'm trying to keep the bigger world in focus, right? They would come back and say, hey, this is a cool thing, but I think I have a different approach. What do you think? Show me and... You know, and it would be like, dang, that's a really good idea. I should have thought of that. (laughs) Yeah, we'll do that. Your idea is better. We'll use that. And, uh, you know, you get a long way treating people nice. Um, They will work like dogs for you. And everybody felt a certain amount of ownership over that film uh, creatively. So we just had a great time. It was a wonderful crew and everybody worked so hard and got along so well, you know, that uh, it kind of ruined the rest of my career in a way because I don't (laughs) think that but truly, I mean, I don't think I'll ever be in an environment that was that. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know what the word is. You know, just supportive, I guess, and uh, enthusiastic, and you know, we had all these young people, man. I mean, because we had no budget, we had no money, even when we were funded. It was a seventeen million dollar movie, and so consequently, we got a lot of people. It was their first film or their second film, or they're just begging to get a toehold in the industry, and. Nobody was really getting paid, and man, those guys worked like animals. They—they they were probably most of them didn't have families at that time. They were just young single people. And they'd work till 11, 12 o'clock at night, and be back in at eight o'clock the next morning every day. You know, and we were having fun too. It was, it was a fun time. You know, Carrie and I could never thank these people enough. I mean, I—you know—I I still see a few of them a little bit, but everybody's kind of gone their separate ways the most part. And we over each other once in a while and I always tell them you know, how appreciative we are, what they did for us, because, uh, you know, we, we really were. That's why when I read things and have read things over the years that, you know, we, this movie costs $90 million and all that kind of stuff, which is all nonsense. And it's, I mean, think about it. We were two complete unknown guys who were doing an experimental method of filmmaking that had never been tried for. Who would give $90 million to two guys like that? Nobody, <laughs> nobody did and <laughs> nobody would, you know, insanity.
0: But then even saying, no, just thinking about it, if someone turned around to me tomorrow and said, right, you've got $17 million to do something with your passion project. I think I would just sit there and go, huh? I, uh, I, my brain couldn't even comprehend that, I don't think.
1: I, I don't think we ever looked at it like that, honestly, because we, you know, we were so, because you got to remember at this point, when we were finally funded, we'd been working on it for seven years or something, you know, a long time. And I think that when we, that's part of why I didn't, I didn't end up being the only artist on this thing just because I'm an egomaniac. That's only part of it. Um, I, I was just mostly done, you know, we, over the course of seven years, we're trying to put the short film together and we're trying to make our shots. I never stopped drawing. So by the time we went into the building with our new crew, I probably had 80% of the artwork already done. You know, I knew what the, world looked like i had drawn the characters i had done everything and so consequently when all the artists came on it was real easy for them to jump on board it was all so visualized and we were we were very clear in what we were trying to do we, we knew the movie we wanted to make and while you always make concessions you know in that kind of collaborative environment with studios and producers and stuff you know we largely got the movie on screen that we wanted to and there were a few things here and there but for the most part we we're doing what we did, what we tried to do, and uh, you know that's why I think it was. It was we were never, we never felt weird about that. Like we knew what we
0: wanted to do. Mm. I mean, the product that you made is incredible. Um, nice. I um I was watching it today on in full HD, and just the details that I wouldn't, I haven't seen before. Simple things like he was cutting the wire. And the fabric of the sheaf and of the wire, the little details there, it just made it feel so real. It was unbelievable. And it's that sort of thing that you you take the step up to HD in some films and then you think, oh, it's not going to stand up as well as I remember it. But I was just sitting there going, this feels like I could reach out and touch it in some places. The detail that you went to is incredible.
1: Well, thanks. We, we really labored over that. It mattered to us. I, it's funny that that's the example you picked because, you know, I remember dealing with it. That was a, that's a specific era thing. Right. And we, we tried to be as accurate realizing that we're making a fantasy world that doesn't really exist, but we wanted it to feel rooted in our idea of the somewhere vaguely from 1939 to 1947, you know, and, uh, Everything everything kind of got crashed together. And um, but those little details mattered to us. We wanted them to be reflected accurately and not take people out of the story. And, you know, it's very rare that a person like Seth will even mention something like that or pick up on it. But at that point, you you're you're just committed to what you're trying to do. And we knew it, it mattered to us, so it had to matter, you know. And it is, it's very gratifying when you hear people that appreciated that effort that went into it.
0: Yeah. Well, you can tell it shows. When someone is that passionate about something, it it, it comes through. Um, and I think that's why it's been so successful and people always look at it so fondly because of that sort of level of detail.
1: Thanks.
0: Um, I mean, so the, the general concept of it, you came up with this magnificent world, the look of the world. What are the early inspirations for you that all came together for this?
1: Oh, boy, so many. I mean, just so many. As I say in the book, I personally, as the designer, stole from everybody. Thank God, too long to go into. Be here for a week, but uh, if I had to pinpoint one single thing that launched us, um, it was it was the Fleischer Brothers Superman cartoons of the '30s. Right. Uh, in fact, uh, Mechanical Monsters, I think, is one episode of their cartoon that we took from that liberally. That's basically our big robot marching down Fifth Avenue was all a nod to that cartoon. And this is again, something that, as I said earlier, looking at our limitations and trying to make them our strengths. This is where my brother was really particularly smart in those early days. We, okay. So I just, I finished a film last year. That's going to be coming out in July. It's um, a blazing samurai. It's a sort of a inspired by uh, blazing saddles, but it's a family film with cats and dogs instead of a race relations. It's cute and it's funny and it's, it should do pretty well. But, um, you know, the technology we had to bring to bear on this one, you can have crowds and have, you know, what feel like hundreds of people in a crowd scene, you know, we really don't because it's still complicated and it's still money and it it still costs. But back when Kerry and I were on one Macintosh, we wanted to show Times Square in New York. There was no way in the world we could possibly fill it with people. You know, it was impossible. So Kerry went back and he looked at those old Fleischer cartoons because they had the same issues. They couldn't really sit there and pencil a thousand people any more than we could animate them. So we leaned on things that became sort of the earmark to our style um, off screen sound effects and shadows cast on the wall or close on feet, you know, moving. Um, and we would just duplicate them over and over and over and lay them on top of each other. Any kind of trick we could use to make us as a viewer think there's more there than there's really there. And I've continued to use those techniques all the way through today. And uh, because typically I've worked on since sky captain projects that again, don't have huge budgets but have ambitions and want to try to, you know have some of that richness and everything going through. So I still use some of those cheats and tricks and when they're appropriate. What we didn't show was the key to making that film. Like we really leaned into the noir Feel you know on the black and whites because we could we could hide all our imperfections in those shadows, but those shadows became part of our signature, you know. And um even today, you know, when I'm working on things with other people, um that's that still remains a challenge to get people to commit to things up front. Typically in Hollywood, you know, you've, you've, everybody's heard the joke, well, we'll fix it in post, right? Well, traditional post doesn't. In my mind, anyway, it doesn't really exist the way it used to because we use these tools up and down the line all the time now. So post sort of happens constantly. You're sort of always in production and post production at the same time, and you're going back and forth and ping-ponging things, shots back and forth. So, um, in order for that to work, you have to know what it is you're trying to do. You have to commit to it up front. You can't suddenly get halfway through your film and then go. Oh, geez, you know, I want to flip the camera around here and fly it around and shoot that wall over there. Well, you can't because we didn't build that wall over there. It doesn't exist. And we shot a plate with actors against the green. We can't fly the camera around now. So you got to know what you want to do. That doesn't mean you don't have latitude. You don't go back and redo things. Of course you do. But, um, and there is, there is latitude within any given shot, but there's something to be said for knowing what you want to do. And I, you know, I've worked on a dozen things in all the intervening years where we're well into production and show's been greenlit, it's been funded, we're lighting shots we're making the movie. And then, you know, we're, you know, we're months, a couple months from release and they change the script it happens all the time. It's remarkable that it happens all the time. And, uh, it's just You're just left scratching your head. You're like, how in the hell did this even get this far? Did you people not know what you were trying to do? You know, Usually it's, I think, people that aren't actually in the weeds working on this stuff, putting their hands on the keyboard and making these magical things happen. I think the people behind them get nervous and start to lose faith in the thing that they initially liked because somebody went in there at one point and pitched this thing and somebody said, yes, that sounds awesome. Let's do it. Then you start to do it. And they start to deconstruct it halfway through the production because well that's not quite working. It's, it's it's hard. It's one of the hardest parts of the business for me. It's very frustrating. Yeah, I won't lie to you. It's it's difficult. Um, your only options are to walk away or or buckle down and try to make it work. And um, I like a good challenge. You know, I, I like to uh, I like to figure out the problems and I'd like to figure the way around them. And I think that that's what I've done the last several projects of work thanks for I've been brought in is to help people figure out how to get around certain limitations and hurdles that they're having you know, trouble with. And um, yeah, it doesn't mean it's always fun. And that's, you know, not frustrating, but uh, I, that's, that's how movies get made.
0: <laughs> so yeah, talking about how they get made, I'll jump into more of your background um, in a minute, but obviously you've got the book now um, sky captain and the art of tomorrow, which is in the stores now for everyone listening um so why now why did you think now would be um the right time to sort of look back and take it apart
1: it's a really good question uh a friend of mine shannon denton who's the editor on the book he we'd worked together on a couple of uh animated series a couple of different projects and became friends and shannon's a big comic book guy he's been he's worked for all the big publishers and on a lot of big titles and it's just been his world for his professional life. And he just wouldn't let me alone. Dude, you got to make this book. I'd had offers to make the book, make a book for more than a decade. You know, like I just didn't want to do it. I, I think honestly, candidly, um, making Sky Captain was hard, you know, and, and there was a lot of, uh, rough patches associated with it coming out the other side, you know, and I'm not, gonna lie about it and say that it was always easy for my brother and I you know we had our own difficulties um, at times and thank God nothing insurmountable you know and we're very close and all of that but it's, uh, it's a lot of stress and it was on the two of us and then that in turn got you know dribbled onto our families and it wasn't all fun and games and uh, if, candidly you know I felt uh, like my brother and I kind of got taken advantage of in certain aspects of the whole thing. And so I was a little, you know, a little bitter about parts of that stuff. And uh, when, again, as you said, it's a passion project. It's hard to describe passion to people that are just looking at numbers on a ledger. And we worked like dogs for this thing and it really mattered to us. And We were really trying to do something. And when we ultimately succeeded, you know, it's, uh, it's the whole be careful what you wish for thing. You know, so that's a long way of saying that I just wasn't in a headspace to want to sit down and enter that world again. I'd left that world behind. I was ready to move on. But Shannon and a few other friends sort of uh, stayed after me to the point where, like, you know, I have three kids who were little tiny kids when we're making a movie. Now they're young adults, right? And he's like, do it for them if nobody else, you know, like do it for the people you work with. There's, you know, we, when we were making the movie, um, Sideshow Toys, who does all these wonderful collectibles, I'm sure you're familiar with, they came and visited me in my little tiny office with all my drawings, paper to the wall, and they just start taking, we want this one, we want this one. They wanted to make toys of everything, all the ships, all the robots, the characters, Yeah. which was, for a nerd like me, super exciting. Like, that's almost <laughs> cooler than getting the movie, movie. You know, like, I want, on my desk, I want that thing. Yeah. And we had a Japanese animation studio that flew over to meet Gary and I that wanted to do a 20 episode series that they were going to fund and super excited about that and that's when the whole that's why i didn't do the book ultimately because what happened in both those cases is the powers that be above us couldn't or didn't choose to work with one another like it was all it all came down to people arguing over what cut they got for this and that and they frittered away the time and ultimately you know sideshow has to get toys out before the movie is released and you know, the animation studio, um, these people back here wanted money up front from them. They're like, no, we're, well, we, that's not how we do it. We're taking the risk and we'll put the money up. You know, if you make money, you get money. And so all that stuff went away and it was just really sad. And uh, I, w- I think Carrie and I honestly would have loved to have done a 20 episode animated series, almost more than the film, because we had so many other places we wanted to go with this world and we had a sequel in mind. You know, I mean, I don't know if we'll ever get an opportunity to riff on that again or find a way to bring those parties together that have to ultimately agree to say yes. You know, we we probably pursue an animated series with this thing right now. It's just that there's there's two groups of people that would have to be on the same page, and they weren't. And I don't know if they are now or not, but it's hard to put that together. So, uh, Yeah so that that's that's why i i held off on the book and then i don't know i just you know um i guess all these people in my ear and stuff finally just convinced me i should do this you know i'm glad now that's
0: done i'm glad i did obviously no oh, i'm glad you did as well it's something it's it's one of those funny things about filmmaking is only sort of looking at um looking at your book that you kind of forget all the other bits that go behind it. There's this weird disconnect between us as the viewers and the face of a film that we see. And then there must be a completely separate world of all the people behind. And you, you've you obviously made so many connections through the film, and you would have made a name for yourself behind the scenes. But in from here, sitting here, sitting in the cinema, looking at the film, it's kind of, it's the world you don't see. And it's nice to have a glimpse behind that and actually sort of get you out there and get all the work and the team's work out there to show that, you know, all of this was going on in the background. All this is the stuff that you don't normally see.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's uh it's a little bit like having a child, you know, you can't know what you don't know. People can tell you what it's like to have a kid but until you have one. You don't. You don't really know. And there's so many people that work so hard and so much of that work goes unappreciated, you know, uh, to the larger world out there that doesn't really understand the process. Right. You've got people with whom you can't move forward quite literally. You know, you've got, you've got riggers that have to go in there and put the bones inside of all these robots and creatures and allow the animators to move them around. And, you know, on the film comes out and they're one of a zillion little single line names and a bajillion names at the end of the film. And you're, you're, you're going nowhere without those guys and they're hard work. And that goes up and down the line for all these various disciplines um, in, in making these effects heavy movies. And, uh, you know, I, I think fortunately most of the people do those jobs are, are as, as bitter as i became like i think they just take it as that's the job you know and they're they're thrilled and happy to be have their name on the film and to do the work they did but um they definitely do go people people behind the scenes do go uh unappreciated by the larger public i think and man it's just takes a village you know what i mean yeah. <laughs> it's just, it takes a whole lot of people to do this kind of stuff
0: yeah no i think that's definitely true and it's something that does get forgotten um, and especially in a case like this, because it was, it was your baby. You kind of, you brought all of this out, especially, you know, it's looked at as such an amazing piece of art. And that is your, that's your brainchild.
1: Uh, that's, I'm, I'm really obviously very humbled and gratified when I hear that because, you know, if anything, for me personally, you know, what I contributed to it in my part working with my brother um, was I brought that illustrator's mindset to it. You know, I'd, I'd spent a whole professional career making image making, but it was usually a piece or maybe a piece of sequential art or something. But it was, uh, that's kind of what I wanted this to be. I wanted it to be almost like 2,200 beautiful illustrations, you know, so that if you froze the frame anywhere, it's, it's well-considered. It's composed, you know, it, it looks like a piece of art.
0: I don't know if it's true or not, there's some bizarre fact on, I think it was on IMDb that the average shot length is something like 1.9 seconds.
1: I uh, Sure. I guess. I don't know. I don't have a clue. Yeah. It was, it was a huge labor of love and you know, it's funny. um, I've never watched any of those DVD extras or any of the kit. I've never seen any of that stuff. I just, probably for the same reasons I didn't do the book initially. I just couldn't, I didn't want to see it. I didn't care. I lived it. yeah, I didn't want to. But uh the one piece I did hear about and one little clip I did see was uh I think it was for an EPK in London when we were shooting. They had Angelina Jolie in her costume in her you know chair being interviewed, and she was laughing. Like she was just like, she said, you know, most people don't work this hard, meaning meaning all of us, not not her, but you know, meaning all that stuff we just talked about—all the people behind the scenes and this huge army you got to put together to to make this—and on top of that, you got Kerry and I obsessing about things like the sheathing on a wire. You know, we wanted to be right, so we had every little—yeah, nothing, no detail was too small. We were trying to touch it all.
0: So, more about yourself. Do you remember what your first experience of geek culture was?
1: You know, I can't specifically say it was, you know, Spider-Man number 222 or something like that. I, when we were little tiny kids, my brother and I, my dad, uh, I don't know, comic, we found, he he led us to some comic books or something. You know, I, I just felt like comic books are always around. And he wasn't an avid reader, certainly like my brother and I became. But he must have read them at least a little bit because there were a few laying around, you know, and, and they made their ways in, into our hands. And uh, I guess we were just hooked. You know, I when I was a little bit older than that, uh, we'd moved to a different part of town and I lived across the street from a kid who became a good friend of mine, a guy named Mark Westfall. And Mark uh, had an older brother who, you know how it is new you kid. If a guy's five or six years older, it feels like he's 50, you know? He was a he was a comic book guy, and he had loads of them. He had back users up the Wazoo, you know, like he really found. And I don't know how he did back then, when they largely just sold comic books on spinner racks and drugstores and stuff, you know. But he he did comics that really predated his age, you know. And and so at any point, you know, he he at some point he went off to college and he gave them to Mark. And I remember we would sit in my garage, my parents' garage, and we would sit there in this hot Michigan humid summers and bring a fan out there and point it at us and just sit there and read comic books. We put a stack of them between us and hardly ever said a word to one another. And we just sit there and read comics. And uh, I particularly loved, because this is what his brother collected, were the, uh, I guess it would have been the Silver Age Legion of Superheroes. And that was my favorite. And uh, man, I I couldn't get enough of them. And uh, they didn't really exist. It, when we were reading because they they predated they were old back issues that he had you know but it was funny because you know you you you've spoken to me about uh geek culture and how it's sort of taken over the world now everybody's a geek and you know you can you can wear that you can wave that flag proudly now but back then you could not you know you if you were reading comic books you were a weirdo and a geek and not in a good way and you know you didn't it, you didn't want girls to know that you were a little comic book guy and you're like you just you hit you hid in the garage and you read these comic books with your geek friend and you didn't tell anyone <laughs> that you did you know um the other big part of my personality in those days was as i said i'm a big sports fan and i was a basketball player and i that's that was my huge passion and I, I was pretty good you know we i, I played on you know uh, some good teams and I, I really enjoyed it i still played well into my 40s before my knees couldn't do it anymore. And uh, so I was living in this world where like, I'd go to school and I'm with all the jocks and I'm a jock. And then here'd be Mark or one or two other guys that were like my other secret life that these guys <laughs> are nothing about. I certainly never talked about comic books with my basketball guys, you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's changed a lot. And I think, some of that's great and some of it's not great because it is really frustrating here in Hollywood when you, it's a little less frustrating now, I'm kind of over it, but 10 years ago, maybe, you know, when you're going around taking meetings and talking to people, you're, you're suddenly a meeting, you know, just different people around town that you have to pitch to or, or meet. And, uh, you know, suddenly everybody, oh, I'm a huge comic book guy. And you just sort of want to go, no, you're not. You're a poser, you're a liar, and you never read those books. And it annoys the crap out of me, you know? And uh, that's, you know, now I don't care. Whatever, who cares? It's Comic books are so mainstream now. They're, I've kind of largely lost interest in a lot of them. You know, they don't appeal to me the way they used to. Um, I'm far more inspired by people that are doing Independent work, Com- comics. I still like the art form and the medium. I, I don't. I couldn't tell you last time I bought an X Men comic or Superman or Batman. I just. I still have it in me anymore. They 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 feel too corporate, and too this and too that. And I just yeah, you know, I just don't care about the characters anymore. Uh, as I shouldn't say that completely. I, I I will absolutely be getting a ticket going to see Batman when it comes out next week. Yeah. <laughs> hundred percent but um yeah it's just that that whole you know we're all we're all geeks and geeks are cool and like i feel like you didn't you didn't take your you know beatings for being a geek you you know you didn't suffer the slings and arrows of nerddom back when it wasn't a cool thing how dare you you know like i was offended
0: so the love has stayed with you then from from that that day onwards have you always been into comics
1: yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even, even now somewhere, I've got probably 20 long boxes stuffed with the ones I kept in a storage bins, in a storage units somewhere, you know? Um, yeah. And I have dozens around here in my studio that just, I, I do still buy comics. I just don't, I don't roll in there every Wednesday and buy single issues anymore. I buy, you know, uh, collected stuff in, in books and uh, yeah, no, no, I, I still, I still do. I just think my, uh, my tastes have changed, you know, uh, I was much more likely there for a while to buy anything. Mike Mignola did Hellboy stuff as compared to, you know, yet again, another justice league book or something, and, you know, uh, that's, that sort of a little zig, but yeah. And so I, following on all of that, you know, we, we discovered everything else that was out there that fell into that whole genre heading. You know, we, when we grew up, uh, uh, in, in Flint, Michigan, there was a television station called Channel 50 in Detroit, and it was an independent UHF thing at the time. But it wasn't a big network. It was they—they they showed reruns of all kinds of old crazy stuff, and so we would see the Flash Gordon serials from I don't even know when. I guess the 30s or 40s or whatever that was. And uh, you know, we 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 were mesmerized, man. We couldn't our eyes off of them and we'd sit there and just gobble them up as long as they'd play them. We'd watch them and rewatch them. Uh, we watched those early Marvel cartoons, um, Spider-Man, the Hulk, Captain America, but the one Iron Man. They were really little more than static images, like Jack Kirby's drawing, and they would put dialogue over top of them. And they certainly weren't animated in the conventional sense, but we were all in, you know, we'd watch them again and again.
0: Yeah. What do you think was it about the comics that, that grabbed you so much? Because it, it seems like it was a quite a quick process of you started reading them and you were you were caught by them.
1: Yeah, hooked. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess if I really had to think about it, because um, yeah, I don't think I ever have, uh, probably there was that piece of me that was as a little, I was drawing and painting as soon as I could pick up a crayon. You know, I'd just been doing that much. So those are among the first things I drew, uh, superheroes. There's always superheroes and basketball players. That's almost exclusively what I drew. And really, at the end of the day, they were the same thing to me. You know, they were both superhuman things, you know. Uh, Pistol Pete Maravich or Walt Frazier were Iron Man and Captain America to me. You know, they were the same thing. And uh, I, but I suppose from the comics, I was seeing... Drawings that I couldn't quite do at that age yet. And I was trying to replicate them, you know. and The, the dynamism of the colors and the compositions—just whether I was consciously aware of it at that age, I don't think I was. There's something in there that really appealed to me artistically that I just loved, you know. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's that's sort of part of it. But uh, yeah, the whole hero thing—it's it, funny. I was talking with my sister who also is in the book and contributed mightily to that film. And the other person didn't get me credit for what she did. But um, I was telling her about this series of paintings I've been thinking about doing for a while, just for my own amusement, and maybe throw them out to the world. But it's it, concept of heroes, you know? And so I was going to sort of play with that idea. And it, and it wasn't limited to comic book heroes, but basketball players, musicians, and people that are heroes to me, right? And... Uh, yeah, I'm still tossing it around. I don't know if I'll ever do anything with it or not, but uh, I I do think getting back to your question, that's where it, that came from. This idea of these larger than life people that could do amazing things that I couldn't do. Uh, it's fascinating to me. I I still like that. I, I love, you know, anybody that does something well is fascinating. I mean, I it's there's a great sushi restaurant here in LA that I. I the going watching the sushi chef put the food together is almost as much fun as eating it. You know, it's just I'm amazed. I'm just watch the craftsmanship and um, appreciate it. So those kind of things have always mattered to me.
0: It's funny the way you talk, there's some people kind of say that there's um there's a way that an artist's mind works that is different. And I think what you've said there kind of illustrates it quite well that you you kind of see the world slightly differently in the, you see the sort of the technique and the art in life.
1: Yeah, I, uh, again, I don't want to sound like I'm blowing my own horn. There's something special I possess that other people don't. But I, I do think that in as much as that statement relates to most artists, I, I do think there's some truth to that. Um, it's, it took me a long time to kind of acknowledge it. You know, I, I really was very conflicted about being an artist for oh, the longest really? time. I really wanted to be a basketball player. It's really truly <laughs> what I wanted to be. Unfortunately, I wasn't either tall enough nor good enough to be that. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I I, uh, I think that the idea that uh, I see things a little differently it took me a long time to come to that. You know, it took me a long time to get comfortable with the idea of calling myself an artist at all. I was very conscious of that. I was an illustrator. I wasn't an artist. Which is ridiculous. You know, but I, I made these kind of distinctions in my own head because I was sort of afraid of the whole thing. And I think a certain amount of it was just allowing what's really truly in me to be out to come out. And uh I've got as I've aged, I've got more and more comfortable with that and I realized that yeah, I virtually anything and everything I do and get involved in, it's it is all about how I see it and how it filters through and and, and the appreciation for it. And uh, yeah, it's become kind of everything that I do now, and uh, it's a it's a, it's a blessing and a curse. I think at times, you know, it's nice to be able to see the world in a way where you can see beauty and things other people miss or walk right past. And then it's uh, torturous sometimes when you're trying to actually sit down and do something because you just you can beat the life out of it. You know that very thing that sparked your interest gets crushed to death under this manic desire to perfect it. You know, when perfection should never be the goal, right? Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. On on one hand, it's it's one of those things that with the sort of mindset, it's easy to see that a project like Sky Captain, as you said, seven years in the making before you sort of really um, were able to take it to the next step. It's on one hand kind of impressive that you managed to put that side of your brain to one side (laughs) and be like, right, seven years, I'm, you're going to keep working at this for seven years and not um, sort of, I don't know, switch off in a way because you're looking for um, perfection, I guess, for what your, your mind, your mind is wanting on the page.
1: Yeah. uh, You know, my brother and I still talk about that a lot because he, it's funny, you know, he just handed in a script to this producer, uh, over the weekend. And I helped him with it a little bit at the end, just to get it over the finish line, because he literally, he would tell you, he couldn't finish it. Like he'd written and rewritten and rewritten and his mind was just clouded and he was trying to make it so perfect. And so I went in there and just sort of did a few little silly things over the top of what he'd done. And it was, it was easy for me because I wasn't putting that kind of pressure on myself. I could just kind of sit, step back and see that he'd already done all the work. He just, his focus, he just needed to tighten his focus a little bit. And um, he does that with me when it comes to the visual stuff. I will labor over a painting or a drawing to the point where like, I'm just, I'm sucking the life out of him. I'll go, dude, it's done. Like put pencils down, you know, go away. And it's, it can be really difficult to know when to quit. And uh, it's not, and it's not always healthy. You know, I, I actually think it's taken a great toll on both of us at times, you know. Um, this desire to make things just you know every t crossed every i dotted the perfect way it's it's a tough way to live and i know that there have been there's even been times in my personal life where like i've allowed that to seep in and you know expectations for your children or something that probably aren't always fair you know and you know what i mean just it's uh it can be a wonderful thing you control it and it can be a ho- horrible thing if you don't
0: Do you think in an alternate universe where you didn't have that same support, as you say, your dad was, seemed like he was a really supportive person. Obviously, you had your, your siblings around you, your friend across the road. Everyone was nurturing, despite you being in this environment of all sort of the jocks. You managed to nurture this part of you. It, what do you think you in an alternate universe would be doing now if it wasn't for that supporting environment?
1: I think I would have uh, become a teacher and coached high school basketball and probably had a massive heart attack by the time I was 45 years old. Uh, that's what I think. Yeah, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, was always a, I, well, I, I know I'm sitting here having a nice conversation with you and i reasonably calm and everything. And I think I project that. I think what you see is what you get with me largely, but I've always been a super intense person, super wired. I had an ulcer when I was 10 years old. Wow. And it had large to do with expectations, you know, um, that I imposed on myself, you know, like athletics, art, grades, everything, you know, just, this desire to do things to their absolute best. And like I said, it took a long time to learn that, you know, perfection, perfection is an unrealistic goal anyway. You, you can't hit it. It doesn't exist. And if you constantly search for it, you're going to make yourself crazy or you're going to have an ulcer when you're 10 years old. So yeah, I think with, without the support system I had around me consistently helping me move forward, um, I may well have ended up doing something, like I said. I, I could have very easily walked into a situation where I was trying to be something else and, again, demanding perfection from people when I'm never going to get it. It's not going to exist. you know. And uh, weirdly enough, one of my closest childhood friends did grow up to be just that he became a teacher and a basketball coach and a very good one. And, um, and then he eventually, you know, continued to move up things where he was a principal and all this other stuff. But the, uh, ultimately he walked away from the game that we both loved because it, the demands were too great on him. They were reckoning, you know, he was constantly at odds with parents and, you know, and, you know about their kids and their playing time and this and that and it just sucked the joy out of it and uh hearing him talk about it to me I realized I, I wouldn't have lasted you know I really I think I would have ex- exploded and got fired because I punched somebody or I had a heart <laughs> attack it wasn't going to end well you know
0: yeah do, do you think you're because you said you you started to move away from looking at superheroes um into some of the other things. Was that part of your process maybe of stepping back and not looking at yourself to be, I have to be perfect and anything? The aspiration, the looking at the superheroes and you sort of pushing yourself, um, almost kind of expecting that of yourself. And then as you moved into other things, um, sort of moving away from the superheroes.
1: Well, I think you may have a future as a therapist if you don't <laughs> do that already. It's a really interesting observation and connection that I have never thought about. But now you bring it up, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, maybe so. I mean, I, clearly these were all aspirational things for me when I was a kid, a superhero or a Hall of Fame basketball all-star or something. You know, um, Those guys are human beings, but they... Not to me, they weren't. They were as if they came from Olympus. They weren't just normal people that had families and issues. And they were superstars, you know? And uh, yeah, maybe so. I, I've never considered that. But uh, it's interesting because the, the stories I've written, the stories I've sold, projects I'm working on right now that I'm most interested in are all about slightly damaged people. You know, people who don't have, they're not superheroes and they're not from Olympus or in the Hall of Fame. They're, they're struggling. They've got issues and um, the films I like, the, the comics I tend to read, those are, those are the things that attract me now. It's less about the big, you know, I, I really candidly kind of lost a lot of interest in Marvel DC universes in terms of getting down there every week and buying copies when every year it felt like it was about this enormous crossover event that required mm-hmm. you to buy every title they put out. And, and you know, every year the threat was. I'm like, once you destroy the universe, what's the bigger threat? You know, well, <laughs> yeah. it just became so ridiculous. Like, I realized I I really prefer the more street level heroes. Like, uh, like I really did enjoy uh, the recent Marvel series, uh, uh, Hawkeye. You know, because there it wasn't Thanos destroying the universe. It was a couple of idiots running around and like Robin Hood trying to stop some bad guys. And I really dug it. And he's losing his hearing and She's a you know, underbaked wannabe, and like it was really fun for me. You know, and those are the kind of things I enjoy at this point. I think. It's more humanity.
0: So, what sort of stuff uh, are you reading at the minute then? Wow, well, uh,
1: you know, lately I have been going back in time and just finding. It, it's funny. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of this book. I just have to be seeing it. Alex Sinner. Um, it's a noir. It, it, I, I think this story is. Span from like the 50s to the 70s, and they all collected. Um, but just, I love the look of the book. The stories are gritty and, you know, Raymond Chandler esque and that kind of a thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm all over the place anymore. But I, it's, it's stuff like that that I tend to buy more regularly, more um, off the beaten path kind of things
0: the more you talk sky captain really does seem like a part of you because you've got the obvious superhero sky captain you've got the real gritty noir bit you've got the fantastical bits it does really seem like this is every part of your personality has come together into one magnificent thing
1: yeah i mean i i i suppose there's some truth to that you know we uh we really did throw all the things in there that we just grew up loving and care about and um you know but from the perspective of an adult as opposed to a little kid now I had some technical abilities that would allow me to express these things that were in my head in a really professional looking manner and um yeah I guess they kind of all coalesced you know at, at a point in time and I you know I hope there'll be stuff that we continue to do in the future, you know, I've consistently worked through them since then, but it's not, to be honest, you know, it's not always been on things I've been as impassioned about, you know, Uh, a lot of them, they're just jobs, you know, I wanna do a good job and I've always given my best to people, but uh, there's been, it's been few and far between things. I've really kind of been like, wow, I can't wait to sink my teeth into this, you know? Something I'm working on right now, I can't talk about it because it's not my project. I was brought into it to help develop with a, a director in town who's a well-known guy and deals in a lot of those same things and we have a shared interest in that kind of world, um, that noir thing. And so we're, we're working on something right now. Um, I hope it continues to go forward because it, it, it could really be, it could harken back to those Sky Captain days. It's, it would be unique and different something we haven't seen and it would be encompass all those things that I really do enjoy um working with. So
0: yeah, fingers crossed. Oh fingers crossed. I hope so. It must be difficult when something that was you were so passionate about kicked off a career. And then every now and then you get sort of into a project and you think, oh, this is just a job.
1: Yeah, it's you know it it is. And you have to be respectful of the people on the project for whom that is not a job, but it is their passion project, right?
0: Yeah, like, that's true.
1: So I, I really do try to always give people my best and my full attention and, and use whatever experience and skills I might bring to bear. And I, I tried to really do that. And, you know, I think for the most part I do um, because uh, they bring me back, you know? And if I was <laughs> terrible, uh, they wouldn't. We have, a. Uh, I just did this, I think I mentioned earlier, Plays in Samurai. That was... Uh, that was a really cool thing to see done because the the guy uh, behind it, Rob Minkoff, you know, he'd been trying to get that film made for over a decade, fits and starts and six steps forward and 20 steps backward, And we finally finished it. And uh, lo and behold, it actually got picked up by Paramount and it's going to be released in theaters in July. And that doesn't happen for animated films. You know, if you're not Disney or Pixar or Sony, you can't find real estate in the theaters. And this one did. So, Yeah, somebody thinks we did a good job and I'm really happy I could step in there and do that for them. Um, But yeah, but you know, there's other things I won't name because they're not worth naming. (laughs) I did try on them for sure. Uh, And in between all of that, you know, uh, Carrie and I have continued to develop our own stuff and sold pieces independently and together. But um, I, I actually sold a animated feature concept, a script I'd written. Uh, to Amazon years ago when they were just starting to develop their studio, and I just got in the—I somehow I managed to get in and get a meeting, and I sold it right there in the room, and we were suddenly going to make this movie. And it too meant a lot to me. It dealt a lot with my childhood and where we come from, all this kind of stuff. And then, uh, much like John Carter, after SkyCap, and a series of events unfolded that had nothing to do with the project or me or anything. It was just. What happens all the time, people got fired. The, the guy that green lit it lost his job. A new guy comes in, you got to convince him. And okay, we cleared that hurdle. And then he gets fired. And then another guy comes in and he says, we're not making animated films, and, you know, and it goes away. And that's happened to me and my brother, both has happened numerous times. I sold something to CBS, the big television network here in the States. And Ridley Scott, one of my heroes, you know, again, getting back to the idea of heroes. Blade Runner probably was as responsible for me wanting to do this kind of stuff as any film ever made. And I'm doing my doors off when I first saw it. And lo and behold, I'm working with the guy, you know, years later. and he bought an idea that I created. And we thought that was going to go and be a, a primetime television series. And then similar, you know, things unfolded. We're, we're way above my head. And the project went away. And it's... It's disappointing because all those things really meant a lot and put a lot of years of effort into them and, you know, and they just disappear.
0: Yeah. That must, it must be very difficult, but on the other hand, I guess all sort of the bits that do come to life, they, they must make up for it because otherwise you wouldn't be doing it still.
1: <laughs> no, it's very true. It's, it's like, uh, um, there's a lot of satisfaction to, to getting these things finished, you know? And, uh, and, and there's a certain amount of uh, camaraderie in working with these other artists and technicians and all the people who need to make a movie that I, I miss when I'm here just on my own, you know, writing something or painting something, something solitary, you know. Um, I enjoy that, but you, you, you know, you come to realize that you miss all that interaction with,
0: with other people
1: that are similarly wired.
0: So f- for people who are in the same position you were back then with the 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 project in mind what what would you say to them um, to look forward on that project you know i
1: think most certainly living in los angeles you know everybody feels like they're tangentially related to the business and so you know if you go get a beer at a pub or you a meal at a restaurant your, your bartender or your waiter is got a screenplay or they're trying to act or, you know, that's, that's, really true out here. It's funny. And you meet everybody trying to get a toehold one way or the other. I think, um, I think for most of them, it becomes sort of a war of attrition, you know, after a while, like if you haven't got the necessary toehold, you know, you're looking at being 40, am I going to still, hustle around trying to get this acting gig that I've never managed to land and wait tables and you know what I mean like it just yeah. there comes a point where people I've seen it with many many of my own friends who were completely committed to the business and gave it up and are now doing something completely unrelated and totally different. Um it's easy I guess it's not fair for me to just go, hey, stick with it and do your thing. But I don't really know what else to say because that's what we did. Mm. Right. I mean we just we didn't do it at the uh, expense of everything else in our lives. You know, like I said, I have family and um, I had regular clients. I had deadlines and jobs to do for it. And, um, but we were, we were, we believed and we were relentless and we just knew we had something good and we didn't give up. And I think we could have given up a zillion different times along the line. I think why we didn't is because again, it, We were dealing with stuff that we really loved. It was something that still interested us enough to get up and keep going every day. The minute it becomes a labor, and I'll go back to this screenplay that my brother just turned in, it was at that point with him. He just dreaded it. He hated it. He couldn't even read it, much less write it. You know, he was just done with it. We never got that with a sky captain. Every day we discover something new or a new little bit or a new little bit of research that turned into something in the story or something visual. It was always exciting. So we just hung in there, you know? I remember one day, Kerry was down at his place working on one of the shots we put together. And I was back at my drawing table at my place drawing. And it was the first drawing I ever did of the Flying Fortress, um, Angelina Jolie's boat in the sky. And um, none of this was in the script yet. And I told, cause she, I said, Carrie, I called him up and I said, "Hey." I just sit here drawing, so I had this great idea. We should have an underwater dog fight. These planes can fly underwater, you know, and she'll sail off it and we'll, we'll do this whole thing. We can have Atlantis down there and all this great. And, you know, our dynamic continues to this day, but it, it, it was certainly true then. I, I'm, I'm telling him all this and I'm enthusiastic. And I'm like, oh, that's so cool, we can do this. And he didn't say anything. It was like, you know, he just really put my fire out, you know, and, but that's not what he was doing. He was thinking it through. He's much more methodical that way. And I'm more enthusiastic. And he And uh, He's putting it together. And, and, and he liked it so much, he actually went back into the script and he wrote, we modified Joe's plane. So there's that early scene in the film where his plane goes underwater and Dex did it and this whole thing. And it just it just grew from there. But it was those kind of moments that kept us going. We'd always, there would always be something else. We could just see this world. And very early on for me personally, I realized that I truly early could see the whole movie in my head. I just knew it. You know, we, I knew what we were trying to do and I could see it. I could see these big set pieces and these moments. And I realized before we'd ever went out to a single person or showed it to a producer that my job was going to be showing that thing in my head to everybody else, conveying it to other people so we could actually do it. And, um, yeah, you know that's that's what kept me going, and um, we'd we'd actually failed with Sky Captain, uh, if you want to call it that, prior to meeting Avnet. We years prior, we actually did um, a very very similar project. We weren't calling it Sky Captain, but it might as well have been. It had the intrepid female reporter and the guy in the B forty, and he had a dog instead of Dex, and you know, but it was the vaguely Nazi villain. It's the same thing. And we tried to sell it to Hanna-Barbera as a 2D cartoon. And they wanted nothing to do with it. They just they kind of ran us right out of it. And we could have quit then, you know, but it, we sort of, a couple of years later, those kernels resurfaced in what became Sky Captain. And we took those little basic ideas and we improved upon them. So, you know, it, you've always got the opportunity to quit. Yes, it's just, this naivete and some self-belief and, but more important than that, I think it's, if it's, if you're enjoying it, what's the real downside? As long as you can pay your bills and not abuse the people in your life that you're supposed to love, it, you're just making art at that point. You're just making something because you want to make it. And I think you should do that. It may never turn into a movie or a TV show or a record album or you know, a show at the Met. I mean, it may never be any of those things, but you're, you're making it and you're enjoying the process. So that's probably reason enough to keep it going. When I was a little kid, I remember that, uh, pre-internet and pre-computers and everything. Um, it seemed like so many of my parents' friends did creative things. They painted or they were photographers or they played instruments and they'd get together and jam in basements and they just did stuff and nobody was trying to monetize it. There was no YouTube. There was no internet to sell your wares. They were just making these things because they gave them joy, you know, and they could share them with the people around them. That's been lost. I think the opportunity to monetize everything has corrupted so much of that creative instinct. And uh, it's a shame,
0: you know? Mm. No, I think that's very true. And people don't do it just because they love it now. Um, there's always something at the end of it as it were. Other than yeah. like the thing that you're making. Yeah. You sound like the, the kind of kids, the two of you that would read a comic book and then strap a, strap a dishcloth to your back and then start jumping off your bed pretending you're Superman. 100%. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Uh, numerous injuries and scuffs and bruises and sprains and breaks later. Yeah, we did. So a matter of fact, I was in college so i'm you know i'm probably 20 years old and uh carrie's a couple years younger he came up to visit and i lived in a house with three or four other guys and down the street there was this really fantastic playground in elementary school and it had zip lines and all these crazy monkey bars just different stuff that really felt more appropriate to a bunch of idiotic 20 year olds than a five-year-old so we went down there and we basically played uh we didn't put cape, we didn't put the dish towels on our back for capes this time, but we were basically out there playing superheroes in war, and we we were all armed with uh, firecrackers, and we were throwing firecrackers at each other like idiot. We're twenty years old, you know, we're not <laughs> seven. And uh, to this day, I can't hear part. I've lost part of the hearing in my right ear because we <laughs> we started to we we turned these uh, firecrackers into ICBM. We taped pennies to them so we could throw them longer distance. And I pulled that thing back by my ear and I'm going to launch it and it blew up right in my ear twice. Like it wasn't <laughs> enough. Once I did it again. And, and I don't hear so great right in this ear anymore. And, uh, so yeah, we were those kind of guys. <laughs> Absolutely. <yeah. laughs>
0: I'm willing to bet you were the one that was generally getting both of you into trouble.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That <laughs> is probably fair. Yeah. That is probably
0: it does go to show the the power of having people around you that sort of nurture you and encourage you, um, sure. say everyone around you was creative. It is what you grew up in.
1: You know, it's, it, it really is true. Uh, my mother, uh, any artistic ability I may have visually, it, it comes from her. She, she could draw and paint. And I think in a, you know, had she grown up in a different time when women didn't get married and, Become housewives and raise kids, but aspired to careers or pursuits of their own. She she could have done very well as an artist in her own right because she she was very talented like that. And she did it for a hobby um, for a long time. But you know, by the time we were big enough that we required constant attention for one thing or another, that she sort of put that to the side. So my dad, my dad had written and um, had a few things published, um, so he was always a great resource. For, for stuff. And, and, uh, yeah, there was always something creative going on around the house for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. My, my sister, who's, you know, almost 10 years younger than me. So by the time I took off for college, you know, she was still a little kid and uh, I missed a great deal of her childhood because of that. Cause I never really came back home. And, um, she was f- sort of finding her own artistic path forward. And she had these two brothers that were, immersed in it. And, you know, that created, that was tough for her too. I know, because I think at times, you know, she was, she's 10 years behind me, you know, she's not going to be the same quality of work. Right. Um, Doesn't mean it wasn't good. She just hadn't matured yet. And it was hard for her because I think she got compared to her brothers a lot and she couldn't measure up at that point in time, but, you know, hell, she probably ended up uh, surpassing us both in the end because she came out here to LA and she was, a big shot art director at, at numerous places doing movie uh marketing and designing movie posters and she's wonderful at it she did all those things that are in the book um that was her work and uh, yeah so it was, it was kind of it, it was a family affair for sure mm,
0: it's incredible and i suppose that is the power of power of creativity and that's the power of artwork and whether people like it or not, that does include geek culture and comics and all of these sort yeah. of things, which are often looked down on, but have so much value to them.
1: So much, you know, the, uh, the first art book I remember buying, I was probably 11 or 12 years old and I getting on my bicycle and riding cross town So I, I still have it. It's worn and beaten, but it's, uh, it was Frank Frazetta's first ever collection of paintings. Like he, he wasn't really known the way he is, it would come to be known, and man, I I wore that thing out copying those drawings and bending that spine, and it's fallen apart. But I still have it. I'll never let it go because it meant so much to me in those formative years. And um, now, many decades later, guys like Frank Frazetta and uh, you know Jack Kirby and all these wonderful creators that sort of existed on the fringes back then are posthumously, you know, getting their due and it's a bummer in one hand, but that's certainly the history of art anyway, right? I mean, God, Van Gogh didn't die with any money, you know?
0: Yeah. Was there any point in your life where you were thinking about um, doing comic books? Uh, right now. Yeah?
1: Yeah. I, I actually, you know, I, um, I never really wanted to. It's weird, too, to, to think about it because I just always felt like uh, – I didn't want to commit to it. It felt like such a monumental. How am I ever gonna do that? It felt like too much work. And I look at the irony of any that. put <laughs> <laughs> like, the matter with you? So I've been working on this little project of my own off and on for years when I have time off between things. And um, I finally finished the story. It's all written and I'm quite happy with it. It's uh, I think it would fall under the heading of those types of books I'm telling you that I am drawn to now. Or Fractured people that have things over that it's an existential crisis my hero is going through effectively right and uh but it all deals with the sort of visual aesthetics that i'm drawn to and uh, it's it's not sky captain but it's tangential you know and um i'm really excited about it i, I find myself running back to the board and knocking stuff out whenever i have a few moments and not the stories written i hope to maybe produce I don't know, you know, a dozen pages of art or something, and then figure out what to do with it. Because at that point, I think I'll have enough that I can show somebody and perhaps turn it into a book. Ideally, I'd love to turn it into an animated series. Um, But, you know, I've still got got several more months of work to do on it before I can present it to anybody. But uh, yeah, that's, finally, I'm committing to doing that. It's, I'm excited about it. I like the world and the story I've created. I think other people will too.
0: Oh, that's incredible. I look forward to hearing more about that. Hopefully it comes together. No, it's amazing because I was um, looking on your Instagram as well and some of the bits that you've put up there. Um, and also some of the, the storyboards that um, are available online about Sky Captain. And you can see the sort of the inspirations and the the influences that are there from your childhood. You can see that yeah. it's all coming together there
1: yeah yeah it's uh we were you know I think Carrie and I both were very particular and very methodical about how we put that whole thing together and uh, certainly a lot of it comes from just a love of discovering all these wonderful brilliant artists and writers and people we admired growing up and really delving into them and you know and not and not I'm not completely stuck in the past I certainly look at what's going on around now and, and all the wonderful work that's out there presently but I do think that there's a certain sameness to a lot of the work that's done you certainly see it in, in Hollywood films on visual effects movies there's almost a blueprint for how you make these things now and I think in much of the art you see online wonderfully talented people I mean they can create all these amazing things but there's such a sameness to so much of it you know I think unique voices are Still pretty rare out there. You know, there's, I, there's there's guys out there that can do these wonderfully beautiful portraits of these little, you know, girls' faces and you know, beauty, beauty shots of, of women. And they're spectacular, they're great, but they there's a lot of that. There's a lot of sameness to that. I, I find it in concept design for the film. After having done all those robots for Sky Captain, I can't really look at it. You know, the, all the mech suits and all that they feel like the same thing over and over and over again Just not an original voice there anymore I, I'm not interested in that stuff hmm.
0: it must be difficult especially now as you say there's so many big budget animation that it must be hard to have your voice heard yeah just in general, even trying to get a job, I can't imagine what it's like trying to work your way through.
1: It's it's a lot of uh, it's 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 getting comfortable with a lot of rejection, and and that goes for everybody, you know, um, not not just the plebes like me, but I mean, people at the highest end of this business are rejected all the time, and you know, it's not such a burden for. Some people, because they can fall back on their vast bank accounts and you know, and we'll close through just fine to the next thing. But for a lot of working people out here, yeah, you are, you are moving from job to job. And I just interviewed for a, I had people call me about a project the other day, a television series that, uh, you know, candidly between you and me and whoever's listening, I, I am the perfect candidate for that particular project because it had a couple of things about specifically with my history and what they would require on this show. And I've never heard back from them. I won't get that job. You know, I, I, it could be because they've already got somebody else and they're just doing their due diligence or they think they're going to pay me too much or a million other reasons, who knows. But, um, you know, it frustrated me for about a day because I, I knew when I got the the pitch from them about what the job entailed, I was I was the right person for this thing. And uh, I'd be stunned if I ever hear from them again. You just, you just don't hear from people, you know. Not even to say, hey, sorry, we chose another path, but they just disappear. And uh, that stuff really used to bother me because I try to be a little more considerate than that when I'm dealing with people. But uh, you know, you can't you can't expect that. You're not gonna get it and you're gonna constantly be frustrated. But you know, the next thing will come
0: and just get and going. Yeah. So to sort of sum it all up. What do you you think is the power of geek culture, especially as someone who, I mean, was so absorbed from it right from the start and made such a career out of it? What do you think is the power of geek culture for maybe a parent who's umming and erring about kids wanting comic books or what have you? Well,
1: you know, on a a very fundamental level, I I would have... uh, never known what words like behemoth were without a comic book. You know, like I, Reading is reading for a little kid. I think to take a comic book out of a kid's hand is you might as well take any book out of a kid's hand. You know, I think if a child is invested in looking at this comic and expanding their vocabulary and their worldview and dreaming and thinking of that imagination as a muscle you're exercising, I know there's no downside to that you know, obviously you don't want to show them inappropriate content. There are comic books that are made strictly for adults, but I'm talking about your garden variety Spider-Man book, something, you know, Um, I don't, I've never understood why people would act like that was a bad thing for a kid to be involved in. But uh, yeah, I think, I don't know, like I said, I think for me, comics were aspirational. They, they, they weren't really any, if you think about it, they weren't really any different than the stories of, the, the gods of olympus you know centuries ago right these bigger larger than life beings that could swoop in and solve a problem or lift a building and you know what i mean like what's the difference and there's something in all of us i think that aspires to be greater than what we are and uh for me you know getting the opportunity to work on some of these film projects and certainly sky captain was the opportunity to be a part of something so much bigger than myself, you know? By something I could have never accomplished on my own. But I got to be a big part of something that was so much greater than me. And, and that's a great thing. If you can pull that from comic books and, and draw some inspiration
0: from that, I, I don't see how that's
1: anything but good.
0: You can follow Kevin on Instagram at Kevin Conrad. His book, The Sky Captain and the Art of Tomorrow, is available now from all good bookstores and comic book suppliers. Links are available in the show notes. Blazing Samurai, which has received Kevin's talented work, will be available in theatres from Paramount this July. Be sure to keep an eye out for more yet-to-be-announced projects. I for one can't wait. You can contact the show at Era of Geek on social media or head to superdummy.co.uk slash geek. If you like the show, please do leave a review and tell your friends. You can also leave a review on podchaser.com.